it's Kylie Davis from the PropTech Association here with a bonus PropTech panel episode courtesy of the PropTech Association of Australia and Stone and Chalk. This was the first PropTech mastery session that was held just last week to examine the issue of data security in real estate and how so much of what we share over email is actually extremely risky business. It was a cracking session hosted by yours truly, but with guests Sashini Walpolder from Ashurst, Dr. Jed Horner from Oss Cyber, Shane Goodwin from Inspect Real Estate, and Owen Mooney from Box and Dice. Enjoy. If you're just joining us on the calls, Kylie Davis from the PropTech Association here, and it is great to see so many joining the call for our first PropTech Mastery session on the risky business of data security in real estate. And I'm here today on Gadigal land, and before I begin, in the spirit of reconciliation, PropTech Association Australia recognises the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connection to land, sea and community. And we will pay our respects to their elders past and present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people joining us here today. And I'd like to thank the PropTech Association sponsors, Stone and Chalk, the Real Estate Institute of WA, Macquarie Bank, Ashurst Lawyers, PEXA, Web IT and Forbury, who have been so fundamental to the establishment of the association and made all of these events and new initiatives possible. And I'm very excited that this is our first PropTech Mastery Session, a concept that was initiated by our PropTech Association members, Box and Dice and InstaRent. These PropTech Mastery Sessions have been designed to discuss issues that support the strong adoption of PropTech to identify mistakes to avoid and to provide tips and hints on ways that we can achieve better outcomes. And now, according to the ACCC, scams and data fraud cost Australian businesses $630 million in the past year. Real estate transactions are increasingly being targeted by criminals. And since we sent the email around alerting people to the event today, I've had agents contacting me telling me personal stories about the high legal cost of trying to prosecute if someone steals your data. Every day we're making quick decisions around data security to make our lives easy, but we risk when we do that exposing our clients and our businesses to damage and loss. So if you've ever shared a password, a login with a team member, emailed your banking details for a deposit or have been annoyed at the constant request to update your password, and let's face it, who hasn't, then we are all engaging in behaviour that has some huge risks from fraud, phishing and even identity theft. But we all do it, um, don't we? And so how much of a risk are we at? And today we're going to be exploring how big that problem is, what we need to do to reduce the risks and what some of our major prop techs are doing to protect their clients. And I'm delighted that we're featuring four really experienced data experts who will share their knowledge and insights around data security. And they are Sashini Walpola from Ashes Lawyers, Owen Mooney from Box and Dice, Jed Horner from Cyber, and Shane Goodwin from Inspect Real Estate. Now, our first guest is Jed Horner. Head of Government Relations and Advocacy at Stone and Chalk, or Cyber. 
where, which is working to raise awareness and grow and scale Australian cybersecurity. We then have Owen Mooney, Technical Lead at Box and Dice, Australia's first cloud-based CRM and the winner of the PropTech of the Year Awards for an established PropTech. Next, we have Shane Goodwin, IT and Security Manager at Inspect Real Estate, known best for its highly customizable inquiry management and booking system. And they've recently made some big waves in rental applications with To Apply and have a full trust solution for rentals and sales in beta. And last but certainly not least, we have Sashini Wapola, Senior Associate in the Digital Economy Transactions at legal firm Ashurst. So welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you on our first PropTech Mastery session. Jed, let's start with you. How big a problem is fraud and and data security in Australia, especially in the real estate space? Kylie, thanks so much for having me here and a massive fan of the PropTech Association and everyone here who's joining us today, so thank you. I also did want to say very briefly that I'm very jealous of where some of you are dialing into. As a lot of you can see, given the state of this here, I've been in the lockdown with a lot of you in Sydney. So bear with me as we make it through today. Look, Kylie, that's a really good question. And I actually think people often fixate on the value of some of the data breaches that arise from cyber attacks. I also did want to speak briefly about the volume. So probably one of the most authoritative sources we have on this centrally in Australia is the reporting that the AFP and the Australian Cybersecurity Centre, which is run out of home affairs federally, have on cyber crimes. They actually have a broader definition of what's a cyber crime. So they put everything into one basket, but they categorize it. And what we do know uh, based on data is actually, uh, if you look at you know, the onset of COVID last year, we saw in April an uptick in cyber attacks. That's not a coincidence. It's very deliberate. But what we also see was reporting and raw data. And we had about 59, or almost, yeah, almost 60,000 cyber incidents in the last financial year reported by ACSC and the AFP. So that gives you some idea of, of the, the volume of attacks that businesses are subjected to. But we also know that there were upticks in particular categories. So cyber criminals have become very sophisticated about not just targeting financial services. And if we look at the most recent data, we can, for example, see companies that operate both in healthcare and on the margins experience a huge rise in attacks. And that jumped from, I think, about 90 to 160 incident reports, um, including big players. So I think to answer your question, the volume of attacks actually hasn't shifted hugely. We, we have tens of thousands of those every year in Australia, and they're reported pretty transparently. And then we break them down by category. What has shifted, I think, is the way that cyber actors, threat actors, people overseas and people in Australia who want data are acting and who they are targeting, which I think is critical when you look at a sector like property. So we, we're seeing people chase vectors of information. So, you know, cloud providers are an example of that, operating horizontally across the economy and also obviously shared services providers where there's interfaces with a whole range of people. So the numbers are not actually shifting radically if you look at ACSC reports and even the most recent ones, but the value of those attacks are increasing in terms of what people can extract from that information and what damage they can do when they are attacking companies. And I know others on the panel will probably have views on this. So is the risk all coming from Russian, Nigerian, Chinese and insert country here from scammers or are they or government forces or are there closer to home risks? 
So online fraud is a huge reporting category in that data I just um, cited. So that's absolutely still a, a risk. It's at the micro level, and most people can probably relate to this, but it is the scammers from overseas. And some of those involve allures and promises of love. That's absolutely at play for Australians. But I think actually for everyone else on the call, the bigger thing is the thing you called out, that state actors, and there have been statements about this in recent times by Foreign Minister Payne and indeed our US counterparts, are targeting sectors of the economy. So there are some states, I won't name them, you can imagine who they are, who actually will pursue whole sections of the economy on five-yearly cycles. So med tech, all those areas actually at the moment are in those cycles. People on this call will know that uh, and people who are joining us. And so I think there is a split. There's those individual cyber actors who are opportunistic and taking advantage of individuals. And then there are organized state forces. And Russia and China have been named as such who are looking at sectors of the Australian economy, as well as internationally other economic actors. And that is more around IP than it is about personal data for other reasons. And so how are we at a bigger risk of scammers trying to steal our data in real estate or are we at a bigger risk of employee trying to download a whole pile of records and walk out the door and sit up across the road? What, where, where are the risks there too? Did we want to throw that to the rest of the panel? I'm just mindful they will have answers that are bang on with this topic. I do think insider risks, just to briefly respond, are, are huge. I think they've been historically underappreciated. So that is the disgruntled employee, the person who is opportunistic, the person who, you know, as we discussed, might be leaving on a Monday and uh, working exceptionally hard on a Friday in a time in a way you've never seen them work before, which poses risks. And of course, where the value of the data is increased. So depending on your, the size of your company and who you're dealing with, the risk uh, increases exponentially too. So I think we do talk about external actors. You just spoke about countries that are trying to do things to Australian companies. Absolutely. I think the other thing we need to be mindful of is opportunistic people who both will do it for money or for other purposes too. And, and so I'm sure the other panellists will have uh, crisper insights, but that's been something we've actually neglected across all industries, I would argue. And now industry is taking it seriously because we've seen what damage one person can do. What sort of data is that real estate agents have is sexy or of interest to scammers from overseas? Again, I'm going to throw this open to the panel because they would know in quite um, nauseating detail about detail about <laughs> that. But I think personally identifying uh, identifiable information is one. So if you think about why people steal personal data, it's not just for the sake of having it. Data is power on its own. But it also is ammunition for phishing attacks and things you would do later on. So it is mm -hmm. useful for social engineering. Um, and that's a new term people on the call may or may not know about. But that's knowing that I'm going to call Sashini or, or oh, and others on the call or Shane and I would know more about them as a malicious actor than I would when I started without that information at my fingertips. So I think that's one motivator. If you think about real estate agents, let's be real, some of the vetting real estate agents do, which is fantastic, is actually more thorough than a lot of employers will do. Controversial comment, I know, but uh, you all know the data you, you wade through. And so I think that's interesting because if you think about my comment before about a vector, if you were attacking someone or an entity, you would go for the person who, who held the most amount of information. Look at what happened in the United States with the Office of Personnel Management. People didn't try, this was a hack of a few years ago, a huge data breach. What those state actors did was actually go for a big database that held records on all US government employees, rather than go for each 
government agency, which would have involved so much more effort. So think about it through that lens. As a real estate agent, as frankly, anyone working in the property value chain, you deal in different types of data. And depending on the types of data you deal in, it's absolutely more appealing to a cyber criminal for a whole range of reasons. So I guess as a real estate agent, that Mr. and Mrs. Jones are in the process of selling their house. So if that, and you know how much that property is now sold for and what the transfers are going to be and all of that sort of stuff. So if anyone can get into the middle of that chain and then pretend to be someone from your office to change bank details or divert funds or even scam Mr. and Mrs. Jones into spending money on stuff that is never going to deliver a product, that can be part of the risk as well. Absolutely. And I think to make it more blunt and to get people to to understand that risk, as you say, if Mr. and Mrs. Jones or Mr. and Mr. Jones, who knows, are, are applying for rental property or, or any other transaction in this space, yes, you would know their income details. You would ask for verification of that. You might have flags there around someone who's receiving a social welfare payment to care for a sick or vulnerable relative. So you actually have, as, as an actor, you have a full profile of someone's financial vulnerabilities and their um, situation in life, which for not just for cyber actors, but for intelligence agencies and everything else is actually the holy grail. It would take you so much effort to find that information out through other channels. If you do it through one fell swoop, you can obtain that. So sitting on, as you say, Kylie, very valuable information. But I have to say also, I know real estate agents and everyone take this incredibly seriously. So we know the risks, but the risks are the same whether you're in real estate or indeed you work for government. Those risks are constant, actually. They just differ depending on the context. Yeah. And so we saw recently, didn't we, Jed, that the property valuation space had a big data breach. Tell us a little bit about that and and what the outcome of that was. There have been a few of those incidents globally, so I don't want to pick out um, anyone, you know, and have them feel that they're being singled out. But people are aware in the Australian context of the issue that happened with Landmark White a, a number of years ago now, where there was an inside actor and there were, you know, allegations that a breach took place. I know that went through the judicial system, so I'm not going to comment on that. But the effect that had was to encourage people working in the valuation space, particularly working in a space adjacent to banks. And we all know where the regulation is tighter, the risk is higher, and the liability as well. And I'm, I'm sure Sashini can share some light on this as well. But what happened with that, it's actually a really positive story for Australia, is it prompted behaviour change from people working in the valuation chain. So banks and others who, who are carrying the can in terms of liability in that space as well, started to talk about security standards, cyber security standards, information security standards to be more specific, like ISO, and to mandate that through the supply chain. And then we saw an uplift there. So we saw a shift from uh, you know, I'm putting my hand up to say I'm doing the right thing. I am taking measures to protect information. Here's what I'm doing, one, two, three, to now I have a management system. I've got someone accountable in my business. It drove a behavior change. But as you say, it took an event to, to prompt that. And to be frank and to be fair to the property industry, that's the same across the economy. We see mm-hmm. those focusing events driving us as humans to change the way we act. So when we see a risk materialize, become real, become messy, we, we tend to act, but to give the property industry credit, people rallied around and people took actual practical measures. I think in a way we probably haven't seen across other industries, but I'm sure other panellists, again, will have a view on that, uh, being deeply embedded in the. And what's government got planned on how this stuff needs to be addressed? 
a whole range of things is the short answer. <laughs> and some on the call, like me, might think it's a good thing and it's an interesting thing at the same time, if I can use that word. Government's got a cascading series of measures proposed. The first is amendments to the Critical Infrastructure Act. Now, that might sound like completely strange to a lot of people on this call. Critical infrastructure, What's that's the whole point. They actually are proposing to expand the definition of what is critical infrastructure. So not just water and power as the rest of us would understand it, but they're talking about areas like data processing. Big questions there, what does that mean? Because isn't every platform business a data processor? And indeed, other sectors too, so like healthcare and the like. So that's a legislative measure. That will be that will have implications for every sector of the economy that's impacted because it'll be new requirements for business. And that bill's just before a parliamentary committee now making its way through. On the voluntary front, the Department of Home Affairs and the Minister Karen Andrews has released a discussion paper. It closed last Friday on measures to improve our cyber posture, for want of a better word. So these are things like cyber standards. They are measures like health checks for small businesses, very simple online checks as baseline. They're all measures the government's proposing. To be frank with you, and we've lodged a submission on this, which people might be able to follow. It'll go online in the next two days from Cyber. But we are raising some questions as to how do these things intersect? Because the other thing we're equally focused on is, yes, it's great to raise the cyber posture and we need to do that. We need to give businesses, the tools and resources and the frameworks. But there are already a lot of frameworks and standards out there that exist. Companies are actually pretty proactive, or at least some of them are. And so the other flip side to that is just making sure we balance all of these threats and all of these risks and all the vulnerabilities that are entangled in them, as as well as the cost of doing business. Because we've got to do that balancing act. We can build Mm -hmm. Fort Knox. We have to trade globally. People want to expand into markets. So we need to be careful to to balance those. Awesome. So what I'm hearing from you is that the data that we've got access to as agents is more valuable than we probably realised, that it is under constant um, attack and that people are trying to get at it. But there's also a very uh, clear risk closer to home that we need to watch for. And in fact, we can't ignore it because there's increasing legislation coming down the pipe that we're going to be obligated to follow as business owners to, to make sure that we're compliant. Completely. And Kylie, just to underscore this for everyone on the call, I know businesses of different sizes, and I'm sure your others on the call will have views on this, but the thing to watch is their commercial contracts too. So where you're working in a value chain, don't think of these things as the government in Canberra is doing things that will impact a big player or a particular actor in a space. Think of it proactively through when that happens, what will this mean for my business? If I'm a prop tech business working in this space, if I'm in the property value chain, what will I have to do differently potentially in relation to things like security controls, risk management that I undertake to do business differently? And I think that's a point I want to underscore is that it's always better to get out ahead and up front. And then I think, as most people know, is to have the cost of business imposed on you mm. when you're playing catch up, which yep. you know, we, we all know as a former small business director, I know that's not ideal. No, cool. Owen, uh, Owen Mooney from Box and Dice, I want to bring you in here. Um, let's just dive into some of the, the technicalities and some of those definitions that we were talking to Jed about. What are some of the definitions that we see? What is phishing? Like, how, why is that what, Why is that a thing? Your phishing is where you're trying to trick somebody into doing something that they, they didn't mean to do. So uh, phishing is where somebody's trying to trick you into doing something that you don't want to do, like going to a login page and entering your details, where the login page is not the login page that you expected it to be. Uh, whereas spoofing is another sort of attack from email, where it's, it's email's very old technology. It's 50 years old. It didn't have security baked into it when they originally built it. We've tried to fix it 
with DMARC and DKI and SBR as recently, but it's still pretty pretty insecure means of communication, especially for identifying who is actually sending you the email and making sure it is them. And that's where spoofing comes in. Somebody can pretend. It's very easy for somebody to send you an email from me with my email address, and it looks like it comes from me. You can't tell. It's really hard to, to distinguish that. So spoofing and phishing. And, and so what are the behaviours that agents are engaging in that and, and property managers, like that, the whole industry, what are we doing that's putting us at risk? We can fix passwords and make them stronger in our systems. We, can, we all know password 1234 is not a valid password. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but the, the, the actual email is actually the biggest risk these days. There's a lot of phishing attacks that are happening at the moment. It's re, it's really increasing the number that are, that are, that are taking, taking place. And so, yeah, you really just need to be careful when you get an email because it's very easy. It's really easy to be tricked by a phishing speaking email. And clicking on a link you should click on. Mm. So, so what should we be doing instead? If email's well, so dangerous, how should we be handling it instead? Well, you just need to be very careful of emails that you think are suspicious, and don't click on links and open attachments in them. And and maybe even call the sender and verify that they sent the email. If you suspect that this this doesn't seem right, the the, the spelling mistakes here it just looks wrong, the grammar's wrong, something's not. Don't quite call right the phone out. number in the email. Go back to your database and look them up separately. Yeah, so that's one one thing to do. The other thing to do is set up multi-factor authentication to your applications, so that it, if anyone, uh, if yourself or anyone in your organisation does get tricked, it makes it a lot harder for the intruder to gain access to your systems. Right. Now I'm going to put my hand up and confess whenever I get a notification that says I need to set up multi-factor identification, a little part of me dies inside and I think, oh, do I really have to? That's going to be so hard. Yeah. Is it really that hard? Why is it um, more secure? Well, it's more secure because you're into your username and password, which, which, which don't change that often. But then there's a multi-factor authentication will present you with a third step, username, password, and then a code. And that code is changing regularly. It can come to you via a text or an SMS or an authenticator app. And if you truly get your username and password and that code, by the time they try and use it, that code has changed the, because it changes every minute. So it's no good to them. So it, it really helps security. But it is a hassle. But you get used to it. I, I have multi-factor authentication on for pretty much every application, especially being writing code. It's very important because one of the vectors for uh, intruders is getting access to developers' machines and then injecting code into the source code that goes into the application that gets distributed and they've got a backdoor into an application. So it's very important for developers to use uh, multi-factor authentication. And I'm quite used to it. Uh, what can help is single sign-on. So what you can do is you can set up, your organisation can set up single sign-on, which means that your users will log into an application, will log in once with username, password, multi-factor authentication, and then they've got access to their email, their CRM, their chat, whatever they need to do. So they're not presented with a username, password, multi-factor authentication five times in a day um, yeah. that they get upset with and annoyed with. So you can mitigate that a little bit by making it easy with SSO. What I'm hearing from you is that suck it up, princess, and once you've done it a few more times, you'll get <laughs> used to it, right? Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> you get used to it. Okay. Okay. Now, but we talked before about this risk closer to home of people you know, of and when we announced that we were doing this um, webinar, I had a whole, I had a handful of agents come to me and say, "Look, you can never stop this stuff because there are some terrible people out there who pretend that they love you and want to come and work for you, and then just get into your business, download your data, and walk out the door and set up across the road." So, what options are there to try and? 
prevent that or be alerted? That's really hard. That's a tricky one. Systems like BoxDice have um, access control over who can export data because we've had this problem before and we can set limits on how much you can, you can download you know, uh, or not download at all. Mm-hmm. But somebody, a dedicated user can just screen, screen scrape, copy and paste the screen and go through all the pages. And so it's really hard to prevent somebody. The other thing you can do, and BoxDice does this as well, is set up auto alerts. So if somebody does start exporting, you can get an SMS or an email saying, hey, you know, this, this user has started to export a lot of records. And if you know that they're on their last day of employment with you, you, know, you can walk over to them and, or, you know, to do in COVID, but um, you can you know, shut them out of the system uh, and stop them exporting the data. Cool. So what I'm hearing from you, Owen, is that we need to have good hygiene or good practices and processes in our business, which is, Log in once at the beginning of the day with quite really strong two-factor authentication, have single sign-on so that people aren't being disrupted all day, being asked to re-sign on to stuff, and have good processes in your business as a principle to, to limit the amount of data people have without stopping them doing their job on a day-to-day basis, but to get alerts if things are, are going a bit awry inside your system. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good summary, yeah. Cool. Okay. Shane, I want to move over to you now because Inspect Real Estate recently uncovered a a bit of a major phishing event that was going on inside real estate. Can you tell us about a bit more about that and what was involved and and what was lost? That's correct. Thank you so much for having me, by the way. It's a pleasure to be here. So basically, we helped uncover it. We we didn't uncover it ourselves. We came across a lot of reports of People being contacted by a gentleman calling himself Dr. Cola. It was a nice, easy email. They spoke beautiful English. It was a very difficult one to tell that it was uh, that it wasn't legitimate. Basically, they were they had broken into accounts somewhere and had scraped data somewhere. We, we're not one hundred percent sure where, but uh, what they were doing is they were looking for the inquiries. So the major portals, REA and, uh, and Domain. People send in their inquiries and submit their personal details. So it goes on, they collect that data. And as soon as they know that they're after something, especially in the real estate industry at the moment where the rental market is under pressure, it's it's hard to find a house. So these people are are seeing a a landlord contact them and say, hey, don't worry about the rest of this. I can uh, can get you in and uh, let's get you set up. So they were, he was this Dr. Kohler, which is more than likely a team of people operating were able to convince them into to signing up for a lease, offering them amazing deals and all that sort of that good stuff that you're looking for when you're looking for a property and and then taking their money and, and doing the run. So Dr. Um, Kohler was pretending to be the landlord going direct to someone who had inquired about a property. Yes, yes. Thank oh, you. Sorry. Okay. I start talking about this and start to get lost in it. There's so no, much right. so much information. Uh, yes, yeah, so pretending to be a landlord and and literally signing them up to a fake lease. They were so technical, they even had a fake booking.com site at the time that made it look just like you were logging into booking.com, which when you're sitting here at the comfort of your couch and you're listening to a security presentation, you sit back and you say, why would I sign up for a lease on booking.com? But unfortunately, some people do fall for that and a lot of money does walk out the door. So it was a very, it was a big deal. There was a lot of people getting hurt there. So how much activity are you seeing inside platforms like Inspect Real Estate? Do you guys have a, are you able to see things like this happening or or when people are under threat? Um, 
we actually, we can see it. It's hard to pour through logs every single day. I don't think anybody could, could actually afford to have a team of people running through logs like that, just looking for break-ins. There are systems out there that, that can help protect your system, but those are usually very expensive and, and very large. What we do is we have a very good sort of reporting mechanism that we uh, instill into our into our distributors and into our clients, where we have a central point where if they see something that they notice is a little bit funny, they send it into us, and a couple of us can review it here at a central point and reach out and act accordingly. We see a lot. In fact, the last two weeks we've been dealing with a, a second phishing attempt that's been that's been occurring. That's been a direct attack. We, we have been having to work on that rather closely. It's been quiet this week, but uh, we, we're starting to get to the point where we see it almost monthly. It's, it is really quite I mean, bad. because these are teams of people who are literally turning up to work and their job is scamming people That's out correct. of money. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, they're clocking on. <laughs> yeah, 100%. <laughs> this is their job. <laughs> it, it's actually very confrontational dealing with these sort of these scammers. I don't know if, if anyone has ever spoken to a scammer. I know I have. They are, they, yeah, and there's teams of them. They've got call centres. They've got everything. And at the moment, they're very well funded. So what people don't realise is if they do fall for a scam, that money goes straight into to funding their organisation and they're able to hire developers and they're able to hire call centre people and rent infrastructure, things like that. Especially now with uh, the cloud systems that are available, you can rent a, a server in, in any country for under $5. And mm. it's so easy to launch an attack from there. It's, it's out of control. <laughs> mm. so, so what's the single biggest mistake that you see agents and property managers doing that make them vulnerable? Sure. So we don't try to place blame on anybody. That's not what we're here to do. We're trying to educate people. But basically what we see is they don't read the email. Yeah, because <laughs> you're busy and you just quickly scan it and you think, That's oh, yeah, I'll just right. get that out the way, which yeah, is it, dangerous it, it, in this. It is. It's very dangerous. People tend to treat it like it's a, a second thing. They're, they're doing their main job, which is in the rental market, is renting properties, making sure the inspections are done. And then they send an email and they think about that as something second to do. It's in the background. And when you do get to your emails, it's like, oh, I'll just deal with this. Yes, no, no. That's the, the biggest mistake we see. Mostly these attacks that we're seeing nowadays Computer systems are getting getting very good at uh, being 100% secure, right? There's always the vulnerability here or there, but we still see the problem. So what these attackers are doing is that they're doing spear attacks on, on people themselves. So they're actually, what's the word? They're engineering, social engineering the, uh, the people and fooling them into doing it. And the way they do that is they just catch you off guard. It's, uh, it's just when you're, you've, you've sat down for five minutes to take a break and you're about to read your emails, that's where they try to get you. Yeah, yeah. And so how do we protect against that? Like just be constantly alert, it sounds. There's a bunch of things you can do as an organisation or as a even a small agency. Let's say there's only three of you operating in an agency. Number one is awareness all the way. Talk about it, communicate it, have a central point that you can bring all the information into. And then at the same time, have a keep a good list of all of your clients. That's the very best thing you can do. And I know that sounds like it wouldn't help you in any way. But the second something goes wrong, you can quickly email them and, and let them know these attacks would be totally useless if everybody knew what, what was going on. So if you find it, you get the report, you quickly let them know. Everybody knows what they're doing in their team and obviously you do it as quickly as possible. That's probably the best thing you can do. Um, obviously, so, share, so what you're saying is share the information that there's that you, someone's trying to fish and this is what they're doing or how they're trying to do it don't because there's one it's a little bit shameful isn't it that if you get attacked or if you get 
it is. sucked into it that, yeah. oh, I don't want anyone to know. Exactly. Or you see it and you do pick it up and you think, ha, you didn't get me, and you just delete it or get rid of it. But actually we need to build a database of all of these scams that are out there. Other people don't get caught by them. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Communication is key. The, the other things to know is uh, where to report these things. And that's people are developing a database and the government's working very hard against that. And it's fantastic to see. I've uh, spoken to ASD several times when uh, these things were raised or the, the cyber.gov.au and they've pulled the AFP into it. It's been fantastic response. The other one is Scamwatch. .com.au, that's another great one to be reporting stuff into. And to also monitor, these websites report back, they tell you information, you can sign up for their emails and receive lots of information that uh, it is all very good. You've just got to take the time to do it, unfortunately. There's yeah. no point in, in ignoring it until it hits you. Yeah, and, uh, I can assure you uh, I've worked for companies, including IRE, that have been hit many times and you don't understand the severity of anything until you get hit. Uh, yeah. it's, it's something that... Undescribable. It, it feels like a lot of work having to report or to read up, but what I've found really helpful when I've seen an email that I've thought, that's just, is it off? I don't know. Is it? I'm not quite sure about this. If you just Google it, just type in yeah. the, you know, is there a Telstra scam going around at the moment? And you'll suddenly, you know, get an answer to Google knows everything. It, it can be enormously helpful. And then report that email on to, to whoever, to Scamwatch or, or your bank or whatever. 100%. The other, yeah. one, the other one to do is most companies will have a central point. For us, it's security and inspector real estate. Some people will have abuse, things like that. Uh, yeah. Report it to them as well. If you're not sure about an email, talk to the person and make sure that the address is correct and everything, but talk to your team and ask, did you send yeah. this email? There's, there's no harm in it. It's, it's yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Sashini, you've got an awful lot of experience in the digital economy. Legally, what are the obligations of agents and principals to protect their data? Thanks, Sally, and thanks for having me here today. I'm sorry, you probably left the most boring person to last. So I guess in terms of protecting data from a privacy law perspective, um, there aren't any real mandated sort of security obligations or standards that you have to comply with. But if you are an organisation that is regulated under the Privacy Act, there are some of these broad obligations that you need to adhere to. I guess one of them is for those who know about the Privacy Act, there are these privacy principles. And one of them is that you need to take reasonable steps um, to protect personal information from misuse, interference and loss and unauthorised access, modification and disclosure. Now, you're probably wondering what does reasonable steps mean? Fair question. There's no real definite answer to that. It really depends on the circumstances, including the nature of your organisation, so the size, the complexity of your operations, the amount and the sensitivity of the personal information that your organisation does hold and the practical implications of implementing those security measures. So I guess from a practical perspective, in terms of reasonable steps, it's really good to implement strategies around training and processes. And as the other members of the panel spoke about today, having real, really clear and thought out IT security and access restrictions. So for example, can you restrict people accessing personal information if they only if they need to do it, access it to do their job? Maybe in terms of IT security, can you possibly prevent people in your organisation from sending certain types of personal information via email in an unsecured in an unsecured format. So I guess those are some of the practical things that you could do. 
Yeah. So that's one of the key sort of broad obligations on organisations. So so recently in the news, I saw a piece where basically somebody bought an apartment, they had to send the deposit, email got caught, and basically they sent the deposit a couple of hundred grand to the wrong person to, is, an e- is a real estate agent asking a client to put their deposit into account, trust account number, blah, 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 over the email. Is that okay? Or, and obviously it's quite easily redirected. What should you be doing instead? What, where are you legally with that and what should you be doing instead? Yeah, so I guess it's really ensuring that you're sending, the, you're sending that information to the right person, perhaps in, even implementing controls that, for instance, if you are sending an email out, that it doesn't auto-fill the sender um, making sure that, yeah, if you can possibly send it in an encrypted file or a sort of a file that requires a password in order to open the document. Those are some of the sort of more practical things that you could do at like an email level to prevent further misuse or disclosure. Mm -hmm. And so if you were being a bit lazy and you did flick it out over just a general email and then something does go wrong with it, are you in the firing line for being responsible for that money going missing and putting well, I guess it yeah it would depend on yeah <laughs> that's a very complex question but yeah I think yeah you probably have to analyze whether you as an organization did implement appropriate controls and training for your staff to prevent that sort of issue from it from sounds happening. to me like you would be pretty vulnerable like you wouldn't have a very strong leg to stand on if knowing that that wasn't a great way to do it and you yeah. persisted in that behaviour, that would be risky. What are the penalties if you breach people's privacy? Can you give us some examples? Yeah, I guess there's a couple of things to be aware of with when you're handling personal information. So apart from those broad obligations that I just mentioned, there's also a scheme under the Privacy Act called the Mandatory Data Breach Notification Scheme. So if you are subject to the Privacy Act, there's a whole um, range of notification obligations that you must comply with in terms of notifying not only the Privacy Commissioner, but also people who are affected with by the breach. So if you don't comply with, if you repeatedly not don't comply with your legal obligations, then organisations can actually face quite hefty penalties under the Privacy Act, up to $2.1 million. And not to be the bearer of bad news, but the penalty regime under the Privacy Act is actually increasing. The government, yeah, the government has announced that there is an increase to fines, which can be quite significant up to, I think it's the greater of up to $10 million and or 10% of uh, your annual turnover. So there's quite significant fines that are in the works. And there's also the government is proposing, so this is all part of there's currently uh, privacy. There's a reform of the Privacy Act that's on the line here. And another power that's being talked about is the in implementation of an an infringement notice power. So if you're just doing, if there are one-off breaches, you could be pinged with an infringement notice of up to $63,000. So how? (laughs) Yeah. So there's, there's quite a broad sort of array of penalties that are possible. And I think it's also just important to note that under the privacy legislation, not only can the sort of the privacy commissioner come after you with these fines and infringement notices, but you can actually, individuals can actually make a complaint to the privacy commissioner and that then triggers a whole um, raft of sort of investigation and obligations on the commissioner. And at the end of that, 
of those processes, what can happen is the commissioner can then direct you to, for example, pay compensation to the individuals that were affected by the breach. Yeah, it, you can, it can come at you from all angles, not only from the commissioner, but there's also rights for individuals to make complaints. And as part of the privacy reforms that I just mentioned, there's also a proposal for there to be a direct right of action, which means that individuals can bring actions against your organisation directly without having to go through the privacy commissioner and seek compensation for basically you not complying with your obligations under the Privacy Act. They're called sort of interferences with privacy under the legislation. So yeah, you can get pinged from both sides. It can be a real shit show, I imagine. You can get caught in the middle of a... So... What I'm hearing from you, Shani, is that you can't ignore this stuff because there's about three different ways that that legally redress can come at you if you haven't been following good practice. And I can imagine that if you had to go out to your entire client database and say, yeah, we're sorry, we had a data breach, you're all, every, all that information that you've been, that you shared with us around the ownership of your most, you know, valuable asset has gone out into the cyber world, that's not going to be great for your brand or your positioning either as an agent. That's going to be slightly terrifying. Yeah. So, yeah, that's obviously um, reputational impacts can also be um, significant from that. Just one thing to note, Kylie, if there is a breach under the privacy legislation, there are ways that you can, there are different options of how you can notify people and different subsets of um, people that you are required to notify. I'm just conscious of time, but um, happy to to talk about those different groups if, if people want to hear about them. But yeah, you there are, just to let um, you all know that if you do have a data breach, there are options as to who you should be notifying in the event of a data breach. How do you set yourself up? Do you have to have written standards and and policies in place to manage this? Yeah, there's a couple of things that I, and I think it's echoed by what Jed and Owen and and Shane have all said today. I think it's really important to have a data breach response plan, which essentially has clear obligations for in your organisation of and clear reporting lines should um, a data breach arise. And what's really important to note is one of the obligations under the mandatory data breach scheme is that you need to, if someone in your organisation has a reasonable suspicion, so that's not even that they've determined that there's a data breach, there's just a reasonable suspicion that there is this data breach that has occurred, you are required by law to conduct an assessment and complete that assessment within a 30-day period to determine whether there has been a data breach. So you can see that trigger is, it's a hair trigger there in the sense that it's when someone in your organisation has this reasonable suspicion. So it's important to have clear processes in your organisation that if someone, it doesn't have to be the principal or the, the CEO, it's if anyone in your organisation does have that suspicion that they have, that they know who they should be notifying to get, to kick things into motion in order to kick off the assessment process. I guess some other things to be aware of is it's all like well and good to have really good IT controls and good internal documents and processes. But I think it's important to also train your people and train the people in the organisation so that they know what those controls are and what they need to do if there is a breach, because obviously people are the ones that operationalise all these um, amazing policies and procedure documents that you have. Yep, those are, I guess, some of the key things that people should be aware of. And just one more thing is if you are having any sort of 
contracts with third-party service providers. So, for example, if you have a third-party provider that hosts your information on a cloud, for example, you want to make sure that you have appropriate contractual arrangements with those third-party providers to not only allocate risk should something happen with their system that sort of impacts your organisation as well, but also make sure that you've got a clear trigger point for them to notify you um, if something has happened on their system that may affect your organisation as well. Um, And that's really the reason why I'm saying that is because of that mandatory data breach scheme that I mentioned previously. There's a whole raft of obligations that sort of triggered. Yeah, so you really need to make sure that you're keeping on top of any sort of potential data breach. So, So Shane, I noticed that you were nodding your head there at a couple of that. And one of the questions that I wanted to throw open to the panel was, why is this our problem as real in real estate? Isn't it up to the CRMs or aren't you guys, because you're part of the cloud, aren't you responsible for looking for the security of our data? Or what, going back to what Sashini was saying, what kind of two and uh, two way kind of obligations are there? That's a trick question, Kylie. That's a trick question. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, the official response for every IT manager or security expert out there is security is everybody's responsibility. So, unfortunately, that's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. But if you're, not, if you're not taking it seriously, then we could secure our systems, you know, all day, every day until, until people couldn't log in. <laughs> the, the, the problem is the attackers will still work out a way to, to get to people, unfortunately. So, so what are the obligations, I'm going to throw this open, but what are the obligations of prop techs in this space? There are some prop techs out there now that are doing that end of the settlement or doing inviting you into the room, the negotiation happens there, the data happens there, that's all kind of locked down and secure so we're not using email anymore. But as part of the whole kind of prop tech ecosystem, what should be happening to make that secure? Around, I guess we're talking about APIs and handing info off backwards and forwards. So I want to hand over to Shane, sorry to dive in, Shane, because you'll have better, more polished answers than I would. But I actually, I want people to zoom back out a bit and actually reflecting on what Sashini was saying, half of this actually boils down to proper risk management that is documented and appointing people who are accountable in your organisation. And I'm not saying that as some sort of person on the sidelines, as a director, I do this. So our IT security is a subset of broader risk management, the reputational stuff that we spoke about. So the simple things you can do are actually, and you can do this as a small business, but nominate someone who is your lead in this area, who might be technologically literate, technically literate in in the cyberspace, or not, but is at least willing to coordinate and learn and to build in all those things that Sashini and I think Shane was talking to as well and Owen touched on around redundancy. How are you keeping um, a ledger of your clients at the moment or a contracts register, all that critical information that if things did go down, you wouldn't lose everything and you can actually bounce back. It's not a zero base like some companies have experienced. So I'd, I'd just say at a high level, do some risk management. There's good standards out there that come from Australia and NZ like ISO 31000. There's documents now who walk you through how to do that. And then there's artifacts to Sashini's point where you can actually prove that you've done that in-house and you're revising it constantly and appoint someone to lead on it. And then we can talk about all the technical controls because I, I do sometimes find that people don't necessarily understand the data they're dealing with. And then we go down the technical path. And, and I think it's a mistake because we start talking about all sorts of fixes that aren't fit for purpose. 
Yeah, got it. Okay, that's great advice. And what we might do when we send out um, to everyone who's registered on the call uh, a, a link to this, the video, we'll also send out a link to that, what was it, I-300, what was the standard there, Jed? Uh, ISO 31000. Look, and, and Shane and Owen will have views on this too. So what we might do is we'll give you some resources offline between us that, that point to all of those things. Okay, that's awesome. Look, I'm very conscious of the time, although we did start a little bit late. What are the... Are there things that the big techs are doing that helping lock this down further or, or make it more secure? Google, Microsoft. Yeah, look, I'll, I'll, I'll chime in. You dive in, Shane. There's, there's definitely a lot that they're doing. They're constantly updating all of their software, things like that. A lot of single sign-on we're seeing. They're, they're migrating. We see them migrating from things like text messages for the, the two-factor authentication across to, to applications, things like that. But there's also a lot of other stuff that's going on, like IP address checking, uh, magic links, all that sort of stuff that, that everyone sort of talks about but no one really understands. But uh, <laughs> there is a lot going on, putting in a lot of controls basically. Yeah. Look, ladies and gentlemen, I think we could probably talk about this all day, but we are probably going to have to wrap it up there. I wanted to thank you to our panellists, Sashini Pola, Owen Mooney, Shane Goodwin, and Dr. Jed Horner for your time and insights today. It's been a fascinating um, discussion. What I've taken out of it is that if you see an email from the Commonwealth Bank that actually comes from sexylegs at hotmail.com, you do immediately have an obligation to let everyone in your team know that that you're under attack and and also report that through and to have great structure nominate someone inside your business to own this stuff and have it written down and then also know what everybody's right at duties and obligations are when you're coming under attack and, and I guess too you also need to be pulling it into your employee contract so that if you do have people who are uh, trying to steal stuff off you then it's very clear as to how you handle it when you get a whiff of that kind of behavior I'd really like to thank the PropTech Association Committee. If attending today has made you curious about the PropTech Association, please go to proptechassociation.com.au. If you're a PropTech, you're very welcome to join. Or if you're just curious about PropTech and developments in the PropTech space, sign up to our newsletter. That's completely free. I wanted to thank everyone so much to all our panellists for your time. And thank you again. I'm off to change all of my passwords. In the meantime, keep on PropTeching. This is Kylie Davis signing off.